Well, let's pray together one more time before we go to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious day, Lord, and this, these beautiful themes that we have sung about now. And now, Lord, we pray that you would take those very themes and make them uh, real to our heart and make them come forth in our lives, that our lives would reflect a life that is worthy with the calling that we've been called, with the gospel with which we've been called. And Father, help us to be those who are skilled discerners so we would rightly navigate between the difficulty and the complexity of life in this world and be able to take your word and to drive it into our lives in such a way that is pleasing to you that we would bring it home, Lord, in a personal way that everyone here would learn and be skilled at applying the word of, of righteousness to their lives. We pray for your blessing, Lord. We pray for, for you to be pleased with our worship as we continue to worship in preaching and in hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is uh, the third part in a three-part section or three-part series, rather, that I've been focusing on in Hebrews. And... Uh, you know, I really took advantage of this because we're going to be diving right back in uh, to some very heavy theological content in Hebrews in terms of the uh, priesthood of Christ and in terms of the, uh, the doctrine of perseverance. I mean, that is upon us as we come to chapter 6. The difficulty uh, passages, the warning passages of Hebrews are coming, and uh, we're going to be in all sorts of deep theological stuff. And so I thought I would take this portion of Hebrews and really use it to make it applicable, to really focus on something practical uh, as we look at all this. And we've already been looking at so much Christology and all of this high lofty um, Christology and how it affects the priesthood, how it affects redemptive history, how it affects the redemptive historical approach to Scripture, Christ and all of Scripture. We've looked at a lot of those types of things. And, uh, but now we come to the, the last part of this section of Scripture, mainly focusing in on verses 13 through 14. And so I just want to read that for us again, because that's going to be our focus. Beginning in verse 13, it says, "...for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature." Because, or who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so when we think of practical piety, we think of our practical life. We think of uh, the fact that piety doesn't just consist of abstract notions of doctrinal concepts, doctrinal truths, but really what is doctrine if it doesn't affect your hands, your feet, your life? then all you have is the worst kind of dead faith. You have an intellectual faith. You're lopsided. You're a lopsided Christian. You're walking around and all you are is in your head, but it never gets down to the real practical matters of life. You think about Jesus and the way that he discipled his, uh, his 12 apostles. You think about how when he began discipling them about the kingdom of God, he didn't take them into a classroom, but he took them out into the real world. He took them into the highways and byways. He took them to weddings. He took them to feasts. He went into the marketplaces. He visited strangers. He visited friends like Lazarus. 
In other words, the way, the truth, and the life, when he discipled his people, the one who had all wisdom and all knowledge, he didn't live in the private thought life of his own mind, but he went out into the world, into the public eye, in the midst of human suffering to show us just how practical the Word of God is, the kingdom of God. The reason that Jesus did that is because true piety has to be lived out in the real world. It's about coming in here and getting equipped and learning the good doctrine of Christ and then going out those doors and applying it to your lives, living it out so that church doesn't end with this place. But you take it home with you. You take it to work. You take it to your family. You take it to the, you take it to the dinner table. That's the way that doctrine ought to affect our lives. We have to bring it in to the complexity of human life because it can be very complex. Amen? This is the point of contact, in other words, where we take our theology out of the realm of the abstract and into the muck and the mire of human existence in a post-Genesis 3 world where it's not just as clean and neat and simple as the preacher wants to make it. No, it's complicated. I realize that. And hopefully this text has helped you to understand your great need for growth. And it's going to continue to do that. So uh, Hebrews 5 here is going to give us one last option. Remember, we've been looking at that, that it gives us different options. And this is the last option it gives us. We are either going to be skilled in righteousness or we are going to be abnormally adolescent. Abnormally adolescent. So he gives us two, basically two categories here, of course, marks of spiritual infancy and marks of spiritual maturity. That's the way I want to look at it. So we begin with a mark of spiritual infancy. Look at the text again. It says, but it says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. And so the very first mark of spiritual infancy is partaking only of milk only of milk, the first sign that assures that you will be headed for spiritual infancy is if your diet is only milk-level truth, milk-level truth. In other words, that means that your soul is going to be malnourished. Your soul is going to be anemic. It's going to be deficient in the biblical iron for the bones of the soul so that you will develop into full adulthood. Partaking only of milk refers to a person's inability to appropriate biblical truth, biblical doctrine, substance, the redemptive implications of Christ into our lives. Isn't it amazing that here the, uh, the, the, the pastor of Hebrews is telling the people that they have become immature, and yet at the same time, you notice that he is going to go right into solid food. <laughs> So how do you bring up a person that's spiritually immature? Well, you don't keep them on the milk. You move them on to maturity by feeding them. You know, you, you might need to begin there, but you've got to move on beyond the ABCs. You get, get away from the Cheerios and the Gerber food, even though that stuff tastes good. <laughs> but what an abnormality or what a grotesque deformity it would be to have a full-grown person living solely on baby food. It would be the gross type of, 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 of uh, contradiction. And so to make matters worse, 
The author really has already indicated earlier on that what we're looking at here is not so much an issue of capacity as much as an issue of choice. They have chosen not to move on to maturity, and so there is a spiritual dereliction of duty to God. In other words, when we don't take this mentality of a disciple this mentality that we are called to grow, to spiritually mature, then what happens is a very dangerous stubbornness begins to settle in upon us. And I've seen that in my ministry over and over and over again. People who refuse to move on to maturity, who want milk, and sometimes they end up leaving the church because they want something simple. I remember one gentleman came up to me after a sermon and he said, your preaching is so technical, my teenage daughter can't understand a single thing you're saying. Can you tone it down a little bit? I said, well, for the good of your daughter, I would rather bring her up. And so we have a sharp division among us. <laughs> I'm either going to come down or you're going to come up. Which is it? Well, I'm not coming down, I'll tell you that much. And that is the question before us because we are above everything. Brothers and sisters, we are to be sanctified by truth. Jesus didn't say, sanctify them, O Lord, by, the, by the, the skill of their music playing. Sanctify them, O Lord, by the, by the degree of their ministry reach. Sanctify them, O Lord, by the elaborate schemes of their church programs. Sanctify them, O Lord, by this or by that. All these external peripheral auxiliary issues where the real issue is truth, is truth. And when Jesus said that in John 17, 17, what was it but the bridegroom washing his bride with the water of the word and sanctifying her? Jesus calls us with the truth, he sanctifies us by the truth, and he grounds us in the truth. First, uh, Second Peter, let me read this to you. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Our, he grounds us in the truth, which doesn't just consist of milk, but it moves us on to solid food. For Second Peter 1, 12 says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. That, and in the context there of Second Peter chapter 1, what he's talking about is spiritual maturity. And he says, Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. See, Hebrews, the Hebrews that is, the people of Hebrews, are dangerously close to failing to be established in the truth that is present with them. I talked about this before, that in our generation, more than any other generation possibly in all church history, we have more truth accessible, available, practically made, uh, 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 you know, readily available for us, and yet... I read to you before an article out of Biola University, a, a professor there, talking about how he has seen biblical illiteracy on the climb. That biblical literacy is at an all-time high. The most basic fundamental truths of Scripture, many of his seminary students are coming in and not knowing what's going on. We have all this abundance of Bible knowledge, and yet we have a, a, an apparent famine of doctrinal fidelity in the church, at least in some places of the church. So the Hebrews are, they're flirting with disaster, spiritually speaking, and you know that more than anything in the fact that they've become estranged to the Bible. Look at the text. He says, 
Everyone who partakes of only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. The word of God is unfamiliar to them. They don't know what to do with their own book. Could there be a greater contradiction than that? A Christian that is unaccustomed, unfamiliar with the word of righteousness. That is a terrible, terrible characteristic. And that is one that by the grace of God for our church and the people of our church, I don't want to see happen. I want to see you be familiar with the word of righteousness because it is your life. As Moses told the children of Israel, this word is not trivial for you. It is your life. You live on the word. You apply the word. You, you, you consume the word. You learn the word. You memorize the word. We sing the word. We are a word-oriented people. That's the way that God would have it. But in terms of sanctification, we will be hindered if we're unfamiliar with the word of righteousness, not just in making exegetical decisions. You know where, there's this, where this is going. It's not just exegetical decisions that are on the line. There are ethical decisions, spiritual decisions, moral decisions that are on the line. You know what's interesting about this um, about this phrase here where he says that they are, they are not accustomed to the word of righteousness. An interesting word here, accustomed. The Greek word is actually a compound word. It, it's from the word peira, and the word peira literally means trial. Uh, and then with the alpha privative attached to it is a peira, which means no trial. It means incapable of making a trial. In other words, you cannot apply, you cannot test, you cannot discern Scripture for yourself. What a terrible, uh, what, a, what, what a terrible attribute for the Christian life. The only thing that will hold you together in this life, and yet you are so incapable of using it and applying it to your own personal experience. You can't apply the Word of God. You cannot discern between right and wrong, good and evil. But this is the thing. The author finally describes them as infants. You see that? He says, because he is an infant. An infant. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, because I think Ephesians chapter 4 gives us the total picture, the total package because it not just talks about the individual, but it talks about the whole church. It talks about the purpose of the church. It talks about discipleship. It talks about the purpose of discipleship. Uh, you know this passage, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. He gave apostle, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So that verse 12 is essentially the goal. The goal is equipped people equipping one another to edify the church of God. That's the goal. And then he gets down into the particulars. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, watch this, to a mature man. And then this probably explains it all. To the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Uh, this is why I'm tempted to preach he Ephesians after Hebrews, I'm telling you. Listen to that. Look at that phrase. The measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. How do we distill that and make it simple to comprehend what he's saying? What he's saying is that until more and more and more and more Christ-likeness is apparent in you. That's what he's saying. There is no such thing as sanctification apart from Christ-likeness. 
Matter of fact, we can just say that, you know, uh, exhaustively. Christ-likeness is sanctification. That's what it is. And we are to grow up like a mature man into Christ-likeness. What's the result? Look at verse 13, the positive effects. Well, said negatively, but look at what he says. As a result, we are no longer to be children. Same word, napias. We are no longer to be infants, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by wind of doctrine. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what I believe. I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about that. I don't know how to make decisions in my Christian life. I'm lost. I don't know how to discern what is right, what is wrong. I rely on my pastor to do that. And so my job is to try to get you to a place where you don't rely on your pastor for everything, where if a Jehovah Witness comes knocking at your door, you're not caught, you're not caught ill-equipped to deal with it, right? But you can do it. Husbands, you've trained your family. You've, you've, you've washed your wife with the water of the word. You, you, you've been leading your home like a prophet, priest, and king in your home. You've been, you've been discipling your kids. You've been discipling your wife. You've been doing what God calls you to do so that at work your wife is not caught off guard and doesn't know how to protect herself spiritually. This has so many applications. But look at the most sinister application of all. The end of verse 14. So that we will not be carried about by every wind of doctrine... By the trickery of men. You see, there are people that are vying for your spiritual affections that, have your, your, that, that don't have a good intention in it. <laughs> they mean to deceive you, to make it crystal clear. By craftiness in deceitful scheming. That's what's going on all across America, all across the globe, is you have crafty, tricky men who are scheming in a deceitful way to get, to get and to gain something from the people of God. I'll never forget it. There I am, Uganda, and I am in Kampala, the city of Kampala, and it is the most impoverished place that I have ever visited on the planet. And I go into the Christian bookstore, and whose face do I see? Oh, I see Benny Hinn, I see T.D. Jakes, I see Creflo Dollar, I see all the Word of Faith teachers <laughs> telling these poor, impoverished nationals to give their money to them <laughs> because God will prosper them. I mean, talk about a famine, a global famine of the knowledge of God. Talk about a completely perverted situation where Benny Hinn should be emptying his pockets and giving it to the third world instead of taking it away. It's horrible. But there's, uh, there's, there's doctrinal problems everywhere. Where he says, carried about by every wind of doctrine, this happens on an academic level too, my friends. This is not just low. This is not just for the person that doesn't know Greek or Hebrew. This can very much be for the scholars as well. It is for the scholars as well. The scholars that come to the conclusion, you know, I don't know if I believe in a historical Adam anymore. We were talking about this in Sunday school. I don't know that it really matters that the resurrection is a historical event, as long as you believe in the message that it, it's supposed to portray. See, this can, this can cost you at any level. This can, this can cost you as a layman, and this can cost you as a scholar. There are many, many scholars today 
knowing Greek, knowing Hebrew, knowing theological German, Latin, you name it, than they are in hell right now, sadly. John Piper preached a wonderful message on that very thing, saying, why do PhDs commit adultery? Because just because you're smart, that doesn't mean that you're sanctified. So we need to be careful of that too, right? That we're not just saying, look, get doctrine and you'll be holy. That is not what Hebrews is implying here. But the emphasis is there because that is where the problem is currently in Hebrews. But that's no sure proof of a sign of grace in your life. It should be there, and it should lead to I was to say, the people who know the Bible more than anybody should be the most holy. It's what, um, it's what um, uh, Francis Turretin in his great you know, three volumes of Elenctic Theology said that the sin of, of, of the scholarly people, the, the sins of theologians are monstrous because they know what sin is more than anybody. Very, very convicting. And so let's move on to the marks of spiritual maturity. Really, there's two camps today, folks. There's the undiscerning camp, and there's a discerning camp. This reminds me of a bad joke, and I don't tell jokes up here, and you know that, but I have to tell this one to kind of, to kind of uh, set, set the stage here. Two pastors are going jogging, and they're having a conversation, and the one looks to the other, and he says, you know, Brother, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I went to seminary. I learned Greek. I learned Hebrew. I, I learned how to exegete the Bible. And I, no one's coming to my church. You didn't do any of that, and your church is so full. You've got hundreds of people coming to your church. What's the difference? And the, the other pastor says, you see how we're jogging down the street here? All these people are running by. How many of these people do you think are really discerning people? You know, one out of ten maybe? He said, well, that's it. You get the one, and I get the others because that's the truth. That's the truth. Scores and scores of people. Have you seen Joel Osteen's church? A stadium full of, what, 50,000 people being told that, boy, you are good enough, you are strong enough, and doggone it, you know, people like you. Or how does it go? And Joel Osteen, I mean, who could deny the guy's such a nice, nicest looking guy in the world? You know, he's got that perfect, nice smile and everything, right? But, uh, you know, the Joel Osteen has a very hard time making gospel distinctions. You know, he has unbelievers that go to his church that, that, are, that go unchallenged. He has Jews and Catholics that attend. I saw an interview with a, a couple that were going to Joel Osteen's church. One was a Catholic woman. The other, the other was a, a Christ-rejecting Jew, and they attend the church and they are members. I mean, this is the state of certain things. I know to us, to many of us, it's laughable, and it's just, it's absurd, it's audacious, it's ridiculous. But my dear friends, do you understand that your neighborhood is laden with people that subscribe to that sort of Christianity? And so we have either undiscerning or discerning people. We have people that turn the church into a marketing program. As David Wells says in his beautiful book, God in the Wasteland, he says, you know, church is big business. Every little church is like a franchise. We have our products. We have relationships that we sell. And the core product is the message that we give. And the church runs like a, C, like, a, like, like a business, and the pastor is like a CEO. And the most important thing of all, listen to what he says, 
here, as he's talking about a recent Barna survey, he says the church's pastors, according to this Barna survey, says they will be judged not by their teaching, not by their counseling, but by their ability to run the church smoothly and effectively as if it were a business. That is the way that many people engage the ministry today. It has nothing to do with what we looked at last week in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, that Paul says that his whole passion, his whole ministry, all of his energy, his blood, sweat, and tears was for the purpose of training every man, teaching every man, equipping every man so that every man will be complete on the day of Christ. So that on the day of Christ, when your eyes meet my eyes on the day of judgment, I'd be free of your blood. Because I gave you the truth, I taught you the doctrine of Christ, I gave you the, the gospel, and if you rejected it, or if you were irresponsible with it, or you just didn't handle it properly, or you, there was a dereliction of religious duty, there was neglect of the word of righteousness, then you will be squarely accountable for that. And so as a pastor, my heart beats for that very reason, that you would move on to solid food. That's my heart. So what, a, what this uh, verse here in verse 14 gives us is three things as we think about what is solid food. Well, before we get to that, let me just say that he gives us three things here. He talks about the diet of the mature. He talks about the discipline of the mature and the discernment of the mature. So first, the diet of the mature is solid food. What is solid food referring to? Well, I could agree with John Brown in his commentary when he says that solid food is referring to the scheme of redemption and how it applies to Christ. I think that's right. Turn with me to chapter 1 of Hebrews because you remember what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is all about the development of redemptive history. Redemptive history, right? Look at what it says. You remember this is the whole notion. I say Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, or really verses 1 through 4, is the entire book of Hebrews in summary. This is the table of contents, if you would. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Why is that so crucial? Because in all of that, the entire description given to us there, there are so many implications. We are talking about the patriarchal history with the fathers. We are talking about the eschatology of the prophets. When he says the, in, in the prophets, he is mainly referring to what the prophets said about Christ in the last days. That's not easy stuff. That's not easy stuff when you look at uh, Isaiah and you understand that Isaiah has this whole discourse on the Christ the, the child that is to be born, and he goes on eventually in chapter 40 all the way to verse uh, chapter 53, as, as, as you know well, talking about the servant of the Lord. I mean, these are difficult, you know, uh, first-time pastors don't start with the book of Isaiah. <laughs> they typically pick a little epistle, you know, like Philemon, <laughs> right? Nobody just takes on Ezekiel from the, from the, from out of the gate, you know. 
But eventually, we need to study Ezekiel. Eventually, we need, to, we need to understand the vision of Isaiah. Eventually, we need to discern the eschatology of the prophets. That's why I went to the Gospel Coalition uh, conference this past, oh, when was it, a couple weeks ago? Because I knew that the whole conference was about eschatology. And there's some eschatological things that I'm just trying to work out. <laughs> because they're not easy. You know, you got uh, Piper gets up there and preaches the historical pre-mill position, which is what I agree with right now as of, and he's up there preaching, and he's talking to Sam Storms, who's sitting right in front of him, and who's a millennial, and he says, you know, I love you, you're a precious brother, but we disagree, and uh, I went to breakout session after breakout session, trying to gain wisdom, because I'm still learning, and I'm still trying to discern the doctrine of Christ, and boy, when you're talking about eschatology, that will really test where you're at. Uh, theologically, right? But anyway, solid food refers to the development of redemptive history in Christ. That is, that is because we can see that exegetically in the context of Hebrews and how that relates to the priesthood of Christ. And also, as uh, John Owen says as well, it, it has to do with the deeper mysteries of the gospel. And then he doesn't go into what the deeper mysteries of the gospel is, but I would say it's the same thing. It's, it's basically understanding, if I can use the background of Hebrews, is understanding the Christ-centeredness of Scripture, how that all of Scripture is pointing to Christ, dealing with Christ, foreshadowing Christ, depicting Christ, typifying Christ, prophesying Christ. And then when Christ comes, He tells us about the nature of His redemption, the nature of the kingdom, the nature of eternal life. This is the mystery that has been hidden for ages past and now has been revealed. Just read Ephesians chapter 3 and you'll see that. Remember, Hebrews is all about Christ. Christ is better than angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the temple and its sacrifices. He brings a better, fuller revelation at the end of the age in fulfillment of God's promises. Not just the diet, though not just the diet. And so I pray and I hope that in every household in our church, there is a systematic theology sitting on the shelf. Not just sitting on the shelf, collecting dust, but sitting on the shelf and being used. There for reference. I hope I walk into every single home in our church and there is a commentary set so that you can go and look up a passage of Scripture that you've been meditating on or wrestling through and you want to understand it correctly because, you know, as I said before, the entire Christian life, what is it but the, the, the attempt to try to worship God with as least idolatrous thoughts in our minds about who God is, with as pure of worship as we can as we approach God. Now, the discipline, the discipline of the mature, and there are three very, very important, crucial terms, as a matter of fact, here that are used in this um, description of the discipline of the mature. He says, but solid food is for the mature. And then it says, who because of practice have their senses trained. Now, that phrase is loaded with implication. The first word is in your Bible, probably the term practice, whether you have an ESV or NASB and, or, or King James, it utilizes something like practice or exercise or something like that. And, uh, you know, that term is difficult because hexene is a word that's only used one time in the whole Bible, and this is it. And it doesn't appear anywhere else. 
And so grammarians have had to go to extra-biblical sources to try to discern what does hexene mean in those places where we find it used in the, in the early centuries of the church, for example, or in Greek philosophy where we find the word used readily, or in the fathers where we see uh, some semblance of the meaning of the term. And what's interesting is as many and I went, I went, I went commentary by commentary by commentary by commentary. And there is a consensus now among modern scholarship that exene or hexene is not referring so much to a process as to a state. Let me say that again. When he uses this word practice, it can easily be translated maturity. So now think with me. If it means maturity, then it would be rendered something like this. Because of their mature state, they have their senses trained. And that's the way the majority of scholarship takes it. And so if you want to be stubborn and hold on to your old translation, <laughs> go ahead. But I did my homework, and I think hexene really means this that because of the maturity of the mature, because of their mature state, right, their senses have been trained. And part of the reason that that goes really well is that the other term, the term that's used there, trained, is actually a perfect tense verb, which means it's pointing to a past action with ongoing ramifications, ongoing results, something that happened in the past. In other words, they underwent the process of maturity. Now they're in a mature state, and because of that, their spiritual senses have been trained. The next word is the word senses. The ESV translates that as the powers of discernment. One commentator or one grammar uh, grammarian said it, it means a, it, it speaks of the organ of the sense of a Christian. In other words, it's speaking directly to that issue of discernment. That what this is talking about is that your spiritual capacity has been trained and now you know how to use it in a way that glorifies and honors God. You know what this is saying? What this is saying is that the invisible inward aspect of man, because that word there, that word there that he uses, this Greek word, actually is used in Jeremiah of the inward parts. And so he's speaking about the invisible aspect of our human self. And so what I'm saying to you is that what this is saying is that when a person gets saved and undergoes maturity, he reverses the effects of the fall. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to give you three verses quickly. Romans chapter, I couldn't preach this without these three verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You know this because this affects the inner man. It says, do not be conformed to this world, right? Romans 12, 2. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You see, the mind in Adam is fallen, and because it is an atom, it is susceptible to pollution and moral corruption, and it is, it is ultimately in bondage to the, the, the principle of sin. And so the mind has been darkened, Paul says. The mind is subject to futility, Paul says. And now we begin as believers the conforming process, the transforming process, the renewing process of the mind. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, maybe to get a little bit closer to exactly um, what I'm trying to say about reversing the noetic effects of sin. 
The, in other words, the effects of sin on the mind. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. See, that's a creation theme. This is creational language. And uh, now, go to a parallel passage, Colossians chapter 3, maybe to bring this a little closer to the fact that I think what Hebrews is saying here is that we reverse the effects of the fall in ourselves by renewal. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another. Colossians 3, 9, verses 9 through 10, that is. Since, since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices, verse 10, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. There's the mind. According to the image of the one who created him. So image of God language in your salvation, in your sanctification, is saying you have begun the renewal process, reversing the effects of the fall, going back into the image of God as you were intended to be in Christ. It's just amazing. And then the third term is this word, training. That's why I say he gives us not just the diet of the mature, but he gives us the discipline of the mature. And what's interesting about the word trained is two things. The way it's used in Scripture, number one, and then it's grammar, number two. The way that it's used in Scripture means it can be either positive or negative. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14, this word can be used to speak about a person who is sadly trained in evil, trained in adultery, trained in lust, trained in sinful things, unceasing sin trained in enticing others to sin, trained, to, it says, having their heart trained in greed, Peter says, 2 Peter 2, 14. However, the word is also used positively of the man of God who is training himself, disciplining himself, in other words, for the purpose of godliness, and that is 1 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for all fit for only for old men, old women. Sorry, I don't know why. Maybe it was the politically incorrect phrase that threw me off there a little bit. <laughs> Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. See, so we have a choice to make. We're going to get good at something in this world. We're going to train our mind in a certain direction, a certain trajectory. We, we will either become very skilled at doing evil, or we will become skilled, we should, at doing what is good. So this brings us to the grammar, because the grammar is glorious. Oh, if you haven't discovered that yet about the Bible, that grammar is glorious, then know that it is, because I'm telling you that this word, trained, the author of Hebrews wrote it in a specific way. It's a perfect passive participle, which means that something took place in the past, but it has ongoing results into your present-day life, 
And the fact that it is passive means possibly that God is the one here being credited for our training. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 to see a a possible parallel and link. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 10. It says there, for they, talking about earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Watch this. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What this means, in other words, my friends, is there are no throwaway moments in the Christian life. There are no throwaway trials in the Christian life. God is using all your trials, all your troubles, all your temptation, all your sin to sanctify you, to correct you, to discipline you, to chastise you for your good so that you will undergo a, a training ritual in your Christian life so that you know, you know, don't do that again. <laughs> it's that simple, right? Baby gets into something, don't do that again. Now, that's going to become illegal someday, I know that. But, but God does that to us, right? Don't do that again until you learn and you've been trained by it. Until he, until he, with that fatherly hand, has corrected you to the point, as the psalmist says, where you no longer go astray. That's how much God loves us. Oh, thank you, Father. That he doesn't leave us as we are. Changes us, transforms us, makes us new. Wants us to look like Jesus more and more, every day, in every way. And so the last thing is the discernment of the mature given to us at the end of the verse here where the author of Hebrews says that because they have been trained, their senses are trained, their inner man, their spiritual discernment has been trained. It says to discern good and evil. That's remarkable too because in a sense, we all enter into an Edenic moment where we have to make a decision Are we going to listen to the wisdom of God or are we going to listen to our own wisdom, which is ultimately the wisdom of the serpent? Are we going to do what he says or are we going to follow the dictates of our own heart? Now, remarkably, here's what's remarkable. Remarkably, the context here is the priesthood of Jesus. So so understand this. How do we go from Melchizedek, Christ, the priesthood, to discerning good and evil? How do we go from Christology to discerning good and evil? Well, in the context, the, the, the great sin, the great evil of Hebrews is that the church is being tempted to go back to the Levitical code, back to the Levitical system, which by now, because God has rendered it obsolete, has become nothing more than a cult because it is devoid of true sacrifice, true forgiveness, true atonement. And so for them... They were failing to discern good and evil at a fundamental level. It applies to us because it has to do with the gospel. So that we, too, make gospel choices. So that we, too, become faithful to the gospel. And that's what I think the exegesis is saying. But on a practical level, this applies to the whole Christian life. 
that when we come to a crossroads in our life, what God gives us is not a list, right? He doesn't give us a list of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Maybe even non-moral things. He doesn't tell us what clothes to wear. He doesn't tell us what house to buy. He doesn't tell us what car to buy. He doesn't tell us how to cut our hair. He doesn't tell us how to, you know, those types of things. He doesn't give us a, a list in that way. What he does do for us is he gives us spiritual discernment so that we're able to make choices. And some of you are thinking, what do you mean God didn't tell me to buy that house? Of course God told me to buy that house. I'm not saying it in that sense. But some believers walk around waiting for some premonition, waiting for some sense of something to happen in order for them to make a decision. And what I'm telling you is that if you're mature in the Word, in doctrine, you ought to have your senses so trained that you are able to make real-life decisions based on the wisdom that God has given you. That doesn't mean that the Spirit doesn't lead you. Don't get me wrong. I believe the Spirit leads His people and can convict us and warn us and come to us and give us a sense of something. There's no question about that. But He informs our our soul, our heart, our mind. He informs us with spiritual maturity that comes through being familiar with the word of righteousness above everything else. And so people have come to me through the years with all sorts of questions for their life. Should I do this? Should I do that? How do I know it's the will of God? I've got two good options in front of me. I don't know which one to choose. So my answer has always been something like this. Unless you are about to contravene the Word of God, I would seek to do whatever is the most spiritually advantageous thing for you and for your family, and I leave the decision to you because I can't make it for you. And oftentimes, God doesn't make it for you either. But he gives you the wisdom so that you can make a decision informed by the Word of God and led by his Spirit. That's the, way that, that's the way that it works. That's what spiritual maturity is all about. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I know that there's so much in this life that can pose difficult choices, but good and evil is clear. And so we pray, God, that you would educate us, train us, Help us to learn the pure doctrine of Christ. In other words, help us to get so familiar with the Word of God that we have been trained to make righteous choices, God-honoring choices, choices that will glorify you in everything, especially when it comes to the gospel. Father, I just pray that uh, as we go through uh, the book of Hebrews that we would take heed to its warnings, that we would obey its imperatives to move on to maturity that we would learn from the failure of others, even as the author of Hebrews is constantly setting out the failure of Israel so that they wouldn't repeat the same thing. May we not repeat the same. Let us not get to that place where we're flirting with spiritual infancy, where we're becoming spiritually lazy, spiritually lethargic, theologically lethargic, but help us to be growing in every respect into Him who is the head, even Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.